Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. We exist for God's glory alone, encouraging each other to have a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by Pastor Scott Poling. Great. Great, what does it mean? Defined by the dictionary. Of an extent, amount, or intensity considerably above the normal or average. That's what it means to be great. Great, of ability, quality, or eminence considerably above the normal or average. Everyone, everyone wants to be above average. None of us wants to be mediocre or just average. I, I, I don't want to be an average husband. I don't want to be an average dad when it comes to running. I don't want to be an average runner when it comes to pastoring. I don't want to be an average pastor. None of us wants to be known as average. All of us, in some sense, aspire to be great. We like being told, that was great. We want to hear someone say, you were great. We want to be a great dad or a great mom or a great friend or player or coach of a team or a great teacher or a great doctor or whatever we do, we want to be great at it. We want to be great people. We want to be part of a great church. We want to be great children of God. But there's much confusion over what it means to be great. What exactly does it mean and and what is it and how does one attain it? Well, to know these things, we need to look to the greatest one of all. And his name was not Muhammad Ali. His name was Jesus. And he's the greatest. And the greatest one teaches us what it means to be great. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Mark today. We're going to take a little break from John. And we're going to go into the book of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9, and we learn something about Greatness, not average, not normal, not mediocre, but what does it mean to be great? Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30, is where we'll be. Mark 9, starting in verse 30. From there they went out, Jesus and his disciples, and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. He was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. When he's been killed, he'll rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. What does it mean to truly be great? Number one is this. It's modeled with humility. Say that with me. It's modeled with with humility. And Jesus models humility in the beginning of this passage. I want you to notice he's doing everything in private. It says in verse 30, he didn't want anybody to know about this. This is humility. 
Humility and greatness does not seek attention for itself. There's no fanfare here. There's no telling everyone how great he is. Jesus would have made an awful boxer, just to let you know. Jesus would have had a very boring social media account. There's no savior selfies with Jesus. Here's a great reminder for us. Proverbs 27 two. Would you say it with me? Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. He was very private and humble. Something else we see modeled is the position he took and the title that he used. In verse 31, he said, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of man. Of all the titles Jesus could have used, he could have said, I am the all-powerful creator God. Listen up. He could have said, I am the high and exalted one. Pay attention to me. He could have said, I am the king of kings and I am the Lord of lords. All of those things would have been true. He could have even said, I am the son of God. But he says, the son of man. I want you to understand the son of man was Jesus' favorite title of himself. It's used 83 times of him in the gospels. Of all the titles Jesus used, This was number one. And it emphasized his humanity, not his deity. That's how humble our God is who became a man that his favorite title of himself is I'm like you guys. I am the son of man. Wow. He's humble and private and he's humble in this position and title. He's humble in his plan as he declares to these guys, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill me. This is my plan. I will be tortured. I will be punished. I will be judged. I will be humiliated and I will die the most excruciating death for you. That's the humility of our God. We're reminded of it in Philippians chapter 2. Although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is God. He empties himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being found in the likeness of men, the son of man. And being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the humble plan of our God who became a man to die for you and die for me. And we're told he will rise again, again, on our behalf. He's humble. He's private. He's humble in position and title. He's humble in plan. And look how humble he is with people. Verse 31, we're told he's teaching his disciples. He's taught them over and over and over again. Our God, our Savior, is so patient with us as he is patient with the disciples He's just taught them the same truth eight to nine days earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. It's not hidden. Peter would take him aside and begin to rebuke him and turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. He's so patient. He's so humble as he deals with the likes of us. We're told back in our passage in Mark chapter 9 that they did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask him. 
So he's humble with ignorant people. They're still not getting this. But they think they have it all together. And they think they've worked it all out. And it says here they're afraid to ask him. So many people would prefer to remain ignorant instead of ask questions. You know what it's like sitting in a classroom, neither now or when you were a kid, and you know you want to ask the teacher that question, but you're afraid to ask because you might look stupid, and then somebody else asks it, and you're like, yes, I'm so glad they asked it. And then the rest of the class was thinking the same thing, wondering what's going on here, but some people would prefer to remain ignorant instead of ask questions. Ask questions. Some people are ruled by fear, and they'd prefer to remain ignorant. And maybe they're fearful of looking dumb, and maybe they're fearful of being rebuked by Jesus and called Satan, like Peter was. But I think they're probably more fearful of having their plans changed and their lives changed. Because they've already figured it out, they're going to rule and reign with Jesus, and they've picked their spots out. And they don't want to hear anything about dying. What's this dying stuff? No, 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 this is all about ruling and reigning. I don't want to hear about dying. But Jesus models humility. That's true greatness. Secondly, we see that true greatness, sadly, is missed by most. Most of us do not understand true greatness. I don't at times. You don't at times. And certainly these disciples didn't. Verse 33, they come to Capernaum. They're in the house. And Jesus just questions them. What are you guys discussing? So what are you guys talking about? And all of a sudden, the disciples are like not wanting to make eye conduct, fumbling over themselves like they didn't hear the question. They're ignoring it. They're probably thinking, I'd like to get out of the room right now. No one says a thing, even Peter, which is a miracle. But at least no one lied that we know of. He questions them, what were you discussing on the way? And there's this awkward silence. Because we're told that they were discussing with one another which of them was the greatest. And so they've been caught having a conversation they shouldn't be having. And that's a little embarrassing. That's a little convicting. And they're, they're, they're just caught and they don't know how to handle this. You know what it's like talking about someone you shouldn't be talking about. Talking about yourself, you shouldn't be talking about. We've all done it. The disciples are doing it. What were they talking about? Which of them is the greatest? Which is really humorous as well as tragic. The crazy thing is when you consider the context of this verse. Think about it. Jesus has just finished talking about suffering and dying, and the disciples follow it up with singing their own praises, how great we are. That's what's going on here. Again, think about it. Jesus is out in front talking about suffering and dying, and the disciples are in the back campaigning among one another, which of us is the greatest? And they're ready to cast their votes for which of us is the greatest, and Jesus isn't even on the ballot. But all their names are. They're in the presence of greatness. And all they can do is think about themselves. Now, why are they discussing who's the greatest? I want you to think about and consider the bigger context of Mark chapter 9. 
understand what has just taken place in this same chapter. Three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, just got back from a mountaintop experience with Jesus where he's been transfigured before their eyes, glowing with the glory of God. And oh, by the way, they met Elijah and Moses. What's going on with the other nine disciples? The other nine disciples have been left behind trying to cast a demon from a boy whose dad brought him with high hopes they fail miserably and the dad then tells Jesus when they get back how they failed and Jesus has to bail them out and cast the demon out. And then this conversation happens over greatness. So some of the disciples are filled with pity. They didn't get to go up to the mountain with Jesus, and they feel like failures, and, and life isn't fair. Why do they get to do this? Why do they get to see these things? Why, why can't we do things? And then the other disciples are filled with pride. We got to go up to the mountain. You should have seen what we saw, but we're sworn to secrecy, so we can't tell you. But it was awesome. You should be a part of our club. So you've got some that are filled with pity, some that are filled with pride, And nobody's filled with greatness. Nobody's filled with greatness. My guess is it's the same thing here today in our church. Some of us here today are filled with pity. Life isn't fair, and why this, and why not me, and what about that? And some of us here are filled with pride. Look what I got to do, and look what I got to see, and look what I got to be a part of. My guess is very few of us are filled with greatness because our eyes are too much on ourselves. Well, why would people think that they're greater than other people? I was thinking through this. Let me give you some reasons. I I think sometimes we equate greatness with title and position. We have to have a certain title, boss or president or CEO or seniority over others. Or we equate greatness with money and possessions, being successful, being rich, and having a bigger home or a fancier car. Or we equate greatness with education and knowledge, going to a certain kind of school and getting a degree or having a doctorate or whatever it is. Or we equate greatness with outward beauty and physical strength. Physical appearance and attraction or maybe having the latest fashions and brand names that we, that we wear. Or we equate greatness with the color of our skin or nationality. I'm white and I'm an American. Or maybe we equate greatness with context or connections we have. The people that we know and the names that we can drop. All I know is that we've got 12 disciples here, like a bunch of guys at a bodybuilding contest, a contest flexing their mu- muscles in front of one another. Uh, that's what they're doing. They're just flexing in front of each other. And I want to tell you, you we got to stop flexing our muscles and understanding that's not where greatness is found. And sometimes we can flex our muscles in front of the mirror just by our little own selves and it's still pride and not greatness. These guys are trying to put on a show in front of one another. They're just drawing attention to themselves, thinking they're better. And they're comparing themselves to each other. You know, God's word has something to say about that. 
2 Corinthians 10.12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are what? Stupid. They're dumb. They're ignorant. They're without what? Understanding. He says it's dumb. Constantly comparing yourself to somebody else. It's dumb. They have this house, I have this house. Uh, uh, they, they have that position, I have this position. They do this, they get to do that. Uh, he says it's dumb. You are without understanding. If you constantly are comparing yourself to other people, how they dress, how you dress. Where they got their degree, what your degree is. Their job, your job. He says it's dumb. Don't be without understanding. Get your eyes off of other people. It'll either breed pity, because you're going to feel sorry for yourself, or it will breed pride, because you think you're better than others. So it's best if we just get our eyes off of other people and get them on Jesus. Get them on God. Let's look at what Scripture has to say. When, When we consider title and position... Jeremiah is a great verse, 45.5. In the context of coming judgment. But you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. In the context is coming judgment. Well, by the way, there's coming judgment for you and I who are believers. We'll stand before the Lord. And for unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. There's coming judgment. There's coming death for me. Life is really short. Life is really short for you. So let's not be about seeking great things for ourselves. Because it's all about God's kingdom, not ours. Let's take a page out of John the Baptist book in John 3.30. He must increase, I must what? Decrease. It's not about making a name for ourselves. It's about making a name for Jesus. This should help put me and put all of us in our place. 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brethren... There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Look at verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. In other words, you and I are nothing in and of ourselves. Nothing. We did not save ourselves. We could have never saved ourselves. Jesus is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. It's all about him. So if you're going to boast on anybody, you boast on Jesus. You boast on the Lord. And I boast on the Lord, not ourselves. When it comes to money, it comes to possessions. Here's some good reminders. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: 28. He who trusts in his riches will fall. Not going to get you anywhere. 1 Timothy 6, 7. We brought nothing into this world. You're not taking anything with you. (laughs) If we have food and covering, these will be content. 
Those who want to get rich fall into temptation, snare many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. That's where the love of money will take us. It'll ruin us. Now, is there anything wrong with having money and God has blessed your business? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But don't get your eyes on that. It doesn't make you greater. Title and position, money and possession. What about education and knowledge? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Knowledge makes arrogant. Many translations say, knowledge what? Puffs up. Just, just think of yourselves as a peacock. Woo-hoo-hoo. Look how much I know. Look at the degree I have. Look at the school that I went to. Let me tell you all this theology. Let me give you all this stuff. Who cares if it's going to make you arrogant? Now, is there anything wrong with getting a degree and learning? And, and No, there's nothing wrong with that. Just don't let it puff you up like a proud peacock. How about outward beauty and physical strength? Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Charm doesn't make you greater. Beauty doesn't make you greater. A woman who fears the Lord, yeah, she'll be praised. 1 Timothy 4.8. Bodily disciplines of little profit. Godliness is profitable for all things. It holds a promise for the present life as well as also for the life to come. How about the color of our skin or nationalities? That make us great? Revelation 7, 9. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Guess what? God loves the kaleidoscope of colors. He created every color, every language, every nationality, every ethnicity. They are beautiful in his eyes. Understand, there's no, there's no one great nationality, one great thing. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I die and I get to heaven, God's not going to ask and check my passport to make sure I'm American. It's not getting me into heaven being an American. Knowing his son is getting me into heaven. And that I'm a citizen of heaven. Through Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my country and I'm a patriot. Woohoo! But guess what? That's not getting me into heaven. That's not getting me into heaven. I'm a child of God. That's all that matters. What about context and connections? That's pretty important in life. That's what shows how great you are. Jeremiah 9.23. It's a great reminder. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this. That he understands and that he knows me. That I'm the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. He says, you want to boast? Tell him you know me. Tell him God is your father. Tell him Jesus has saved you. You want to drop a name? Drop the name of your God. That's who you should be dropping, that name. Drop the name of your God at work. And drop the name of your God with your neighbors. And drop the name of your God with strangers. You know God. He knows you. 
Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You know this God of love and this God of righteousness and this God of justice. Start talking about your God. Come out as a Christian. Everybody else is coming out about something. Isn't it about time you come out as a Christian and stop being ashamed of knowing your God? Start dropping the name of your God. Start telling people about your God, how special your God is and what your God has done for you. Drop God's name. Start bragging about your God. Start boasting on your God. True greatness. It's modeled with humility. Sadly, it's missed by most. True greatness, thirdly, is seen in service. Say that with me. It's seen in service. I love this part of the passage. Look at verse 35. (laughs) Sitting down, Jesus takes a seat in this house, calls the twelve. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and servant of all. So it's group lesson time. No one's exempt. No one is above this teaching. No one can opt out or test out. So all of the disciples, this is a mandatory meeting, required everybody to be there. Same thing with you and me. Mandatory meeting. Everybody come on in. Jesus is going to talk to us. But I want you to notice how gracious he is. He could have stood up and berated them and put them in their place. He doesn't do that. He's patient, teaches, mentors, helps. And he says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. He says, if, if anyone wants to be first, I know you all want to be first. He knows that. I know you guys want to be best and I want to know what you want first place and I know you want to be most important. So, so if, if you want to be first, he says, I want you to shoot for last and I want you to serve all. Notice this. Don't care about a title. Don't care about a position. Don't care about having more money. Don't care about how strong you are. Don't care. Don't Go last and serve everybody. Be last of all. Jesus has taught on this before in Luke 14. He began speaking a parable to the invited guests, and he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when one who's invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of those at the table with you. For every, let's say this together, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So last of all, and be servant of all. This is wild. He says, now I want you to understand this. I want you to go last. And then on top of that, then I want you to serve everybody else. This was the exact opposite of what the disciples were thinking. 
It was all about being first and have everybody serving them. And he said, you need to go last and you need to serve everybody else. The world's philosophy is the more people serving you, the greater you are. Jesus' philosophy is the more people you serve, the greater you are. And again, Jesus taught this. Matthew chapter 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, John and James, come to Jesus with her sons, bowing down, making a request. What do you wish? Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right and one at your left. And then Jesus will go on about, are they able to drink the cup and all this? And, you know, it's chosen by my father. And then, let's look at verse 24. Hearing this, the ten others, oh boy, the disciples get wind of this. They're indignant with the two brothers. They, and Jesus calls everybody to himself. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? Servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, just as I, the Son of Man, there's that title again, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That's greatness. And Jesus is the supreme example of this. Do you remember the night before his betrayal in John chapter 13 at the feast of the Passover? You know what took place. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, that he's going to face the most excruciating death known to man. What does he do? He serves others when he's about to die for the sins of the world. He got up from supper. He laid aside his garments. He takes a towel He girds himself. He pours water into a basin. And he goes feet by feet by feet. Lifting up stinking, dusty, dirty fishermen feet. And putting them in the basin. And washing them off. Washing the disciples' feet. And then wiping them with the towel with which he's girded. You know, Peter objects. Verse 12, after that. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, reclined at the table again and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are what? Blessed if you do them. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So, Christian, we know the teaching, knowing it makes no difference in our life unless we do it. You can know the word of God, but unless you're doing it, you're not blessed. We know we need to serve, then serve. It has to go beyond just knowing to doing, because Jesus says you're blessed if you do it. So the question is, do you want to be great and do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be great in the eyes of God or great in the eyes of the world? 
Do you want to be blessed by God or blessed by this world? The decision is yours and the decision is mine. You know it. If you want to be blessed, then do it. Here's the thing that's amazing. Please don't forget he washed Judas's feet. Please don't forget he washed the one who would betray him with a kiss. He washed the feet of the one who has sold him to have him killed. He washed the feet of the one who is a traitor. Who has betrayed you? Who's hurt you? Whose feet, so to speak, should you wash? Is it that ex-husband, that ex-wife, and what she did to you? Is there something you need to do to wash their feet? Is it that coworker who's been bad-mouthing you? Maybe those are the feet you need to wash, so to speak. Is it that child who's cut off communication with you? You're so mad. Who is it that you need to be great to and a servant to? That's what we see in this passage. True greatness is modeled with humility and missed by most and seen in service, even service to an enemy. And true greatness is also tested with children. Say that with me. It's tested with children. This is an amazing part of the passage. Look at verse 36. So taking a child, Jesus finds a child, sets this child before them, a him, it's a boy, and taking him in his arms, so it's a small enough child that he can be picked up. And he says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. This is so wild. Who would have ever thought that this would be a test of greatness? God did. So he picks up this little boy. So Jesus has no problem picking up dirty, smelly feet and washing them. Jesus has no problem picking up a small child. Both of these acts teach the importance and lesson on service and greatness. And he gives them a test. He says, whoever receives one child like this, whoever, okay, here it is. If anyone wants to be great, anyone here want to be great, the choice is yours. Whoever does this, so the choice is yours. Whoever does this, anyone can be great if they really want to. Anyone, he says, whoever receives, that means to serve, that means to help, that means to accept them. And he says, whoever receives one child, just a random kid, you don't know their name. By the way, they're not your own kid or grandkids. Some random kid, you don't even know their name. You say, well, why a child? Listen carefully. Because a child is not powerful or influential. A a child can't pay you back for what you've done to them. 
the favor. It cannot be returned. A, a, a child doesn't have the influence and the connections and the money. A child, by the way, will forget what you just did for them. Won't even remember what you just did for them. And will oftentimes show no appreciation for what you just did for them. And by the way, a, a child is often loud and dirty and out of control. So this is pretty important here. Because for all those same reasons, many people will not serve children. They're put off by kids. They're bothersome. Children are a test of your greatness. And how you treat a child determines whether you are great in the eyes of God or not. It's a barometer of greatness. It's a meter of your service capacity. If you're not willing to serve a child, you are not great in the eyes of God. If you are not willing to serve a child, you are not great in the eyes of God. Pastor Ollie in a life group just yesterday with Wayside Cross Urban Youth Ministry served their baseball league, neighborhood baseball league. Here they are in action. Can I tell you what that is? That's greatness. That's serving children. It's one of our missions agencies. So here's the question. How are you doing at serving kids? How are you doing at serving kids? See, see service is important. We, we got these t-shirts we're giving out, encouraging people to serve. Because we're going to have our serve day next week. Service. Harvest helps. All church serve day. You may say, oh, I don't want that t-shirt. Well, then maybe this t-shirt's better for you when it comes to kids. Hey, you kids, get off my lot. You get to choose the kind of t-shirt you wear in life, man. Because how you treat children determines whether you are truly great in the eyes of God. Who says that? God does. By the way, if, if you serve in our nursery, Sunday school, Awana, vacation Bible school, children's choir, would you stand right now? If you're involved in any children's ministry, you teach Sunday school with kids, nursery, just stand right now. Just stand. Let's go. That's awesome. I want you to understand all you who serve in children's ministry, you're great. You are great. And you may go unnoticed by people as you change dirty diapers and you wipe, you know, noses and you're dealing with kids who don't get it in classrooms and, and you're dealing with our embrace ministry and, and children with special needs or wherever you are. I want you to understand that's greatness in the eyes of God. Because working with children and accepting of children, and this isn't just people who serve, you know, consistently in kids ministries. This is how we treat some random kid at a restaurant. How we treat a kid at a grocery store. How we treat a child in our neighborhood. Do you receive those kids? I want you to understand, it is a test of greatness in the eyes of God. Jesus modeled this, Matthew chapter 19. Some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on him and them and pray. And the disciples said, get those snotty kids away from here. 
They, they, they said, they rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. May we always be a church that welcomes children. May we always be a church that loves children and serves children. And all the children's workers said, amen. Now, I want you to notice next that to receive a child, Jesus said, is to receive me. And to receive me is to receive my father. Look at verse 37. Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So helping the helpless is helping Jesus. God takes notice of our service. And God is personally impacted by our service. This is true greatness. What's true greatness in the eyes of God? Let's say it together. Modeled with humility, missed by most, seen in service, and it's tested with children. It's tested with children. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning, or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit at harvest.church.